Straw Hat with Rabbi David Wolkenfeld and guest co-host Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. We are the official podcast of Anshi Sholom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. So I am very excited to introduce Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb, our guest for this episode of the Straw Hat Podcast. Rabbi Lamb is the CEO of the B'nai Zion Foundation. Welcome to the Straw Hat. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, really, really happy that you're joining, and especially this week. So first, can you just tell us uh, what, what is the B'nai Zion Foundation? What do you do for them? Uh, tell us a little bit about, about your work there. Sure. I'm the CEO of the B'nai Zion Foundation. It's actually the oldest Zionist order in the United States. It was founded in 1908. Our purpose has always been investing in the infrastructure of the state of Israel and building up the Jewish dream in its homeland. So we made the initial investment into what eventually became the Magen David Dome. We opened up uh, uh, B'Tselel College, which is the oldest institution of higher education in Israel. And our vision for moving forward is partnering with the Jewish people's uh, friends and allies and other communities of faith. So I am uh, still only about three and a half months into this position, so still getting my arms around it. But it's just an incredible, uh, incredible place and looking forward to moving it ahead. Well, that's a, it's quite a legacy, you know, Batsala College and Magena Davida Dome. So I, whatever you come up with next that, that matches the impact of those organizations, institutions. Uh, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Mikhail Al-Khail. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Indeed, indeed. So, so it's, I, I'm really, really very touched that you uh, made time to come on the podcast this week as a recording on, on Thursday. We're nearing the end of Shiva for your grandfather, uh, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, who was a very important figure for the Jewish people, for the American modern Orthodox community. Uh, but of course, he was also your grandfather. So I just wanted, like, you could share just some memories of him. What was what was it like to have such an illustrious grandfather, um, to have his name as your own name, and what it's been like uh, in, in the aftermath of his death this week? I'd say that my relationship with my grandfather developed in three stages. There's the youthful era where... It's difficult to tell him from any other grandparent. I mean, he was exceptionally doting and we adored him, but, you know, it wasn't like we could tell that he was an especially important person other than in a familial sense. But, you know, he al- he always was so congenial and doting and, and loving, but we didn't know who he was. And then you get to adolescence and that's sort of phase two where you begin to cognize that he's... Um, in some sense, uh, a celebrity. Um, you know, my grandfather, just to give some background, was a, uh, uh, for many years, uh, two and a half decades, was a pulpit rabbi. Uh, he began at uh, Kilis Jeshurun, KJ, uh, as a disciple of Rabbi Joseph Lukstein on the east side of Manhattan. Then he went to Springfield, Massachusetts, where he became the rabbi there. And then he was uh, asked to become uh, first the uh, assistant rabbi and then the senior rabbi at the Jewish Center on the Upper West Side, the legendary crown jewel of the synagogues in the Upper West Side. And while he was there, you know, he was already uh, a, a, a towering figure within the ranks of Orthodox intelligentsia. And, you know, so in 1958, he founded Tradition, which was sort of the, at the time, really the only, and and since then, you know, became the premier uh, journal of Modern Orthodox Thought. He launched the Torah Umada Journal eventually, and you know he got his uh, smicha from his rabbinical ordination from Yeshiva University, and uh, was a close disciple of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik. 
Uh, and for for those of you counting at home, I suppose in the Chicago area, that's the the brother of Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik. <laughs> My uh, with the t- with the T with the T and the name. That's ex- exactly. I actually tell you a story when when uh, Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik came to speak on the West Coast at Beth Jacob, which was. Uh, my great uncle Maisha Shul, Rabbi Maurice Lamb, uh, who wrote the Jewish Way in Death and Mourning. So when when uh, my uncle Maish had Rabbi Soloveitchik or Varen Soloveitchik for a skull in residence, uh, he introduced him as the the brother of uh, Moreno Verabenu, you know Maran Hagon, Rav Joseph Soloveitchik. you know at the time was Shlita, you know Rav Joseph Soloveitchik, the Rav, um, and <laughs> Varen Soloveitchik got up and said. You know, usually I would take offense to such an introduction, but I guess it's okay coming from Norman Lamb's brother. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my grandfather and his brother, uh, my my uncle Mike, Rabbi Maurice Lamb, were were really just two of the most extraordinary people I ever met. Both. So just pause for a minute and just reflect. So, so Rabbi Maurice Lamb, you know, the author of the Jewish Way and Death and, and Mourning, which is a book that um, over the course of you know, the decades, you know, it passes into almost every Jewish household. Certainly I've given out, you know, to many, many uh, families, um, you know, trying to accommodate, you know, situations of mourning. Um, how is it that that these two brothers both ended up as in very productive, illustrious, um, successful rabbinic careers, albeit with, you know, some different nuances in their focuses? What, what was the home that they grew up in like? Do, do you know? Um. It was a, a classic Galicianer home. They had two parents who were real, just lovely, salt of the earth people, Pasha de Yidin. And I, it's 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 hard to know what what drove them both to such heights. They both their grandfather uh, was a man by the name of Rabbi Yoshua Balmo, was the author of the halachic response Emek Halacha, and he was a, a halachic decisor uh, early in America of some renown. Uh, his uh, nephew and son-in-law, my my grandfather and Uncle Maish's uh, uh, uncle, is a man by the name of Rabbi Yosef Baumel, who founded the Crown Heights Yeshiva in uh, in New York. And so, you know, I, I suppose they were from a, a deeply rabbinic family. They cared very much about the community. And that sort of brings me back to my, uh, my second stage of growing up with my grandfather, which is adolescence, where you kind of realize who he is and what he's accomplished, you know, whether at the Jewish Center as a public thinker, beginning in 1976, as the president of Yeshiva University. Um, but, you know, so you, you understand that he has some degree of notoriety and, you know, you you start to reap some of the benefits of it because, you know, people treat you nicely, but none of the, you know, and maybe even if people have outsized expectations for you, it doesn't, you don't really feel that burden because you're too young and you have plenty of time and people understand so you sort of take it for granted, and it, it's truly a, a shame, but that's, I think, the way life goes. And then my, the third phase of my relationship with my grandfather is, you know, I'd say near the end of high school, beginning when I, I began to study in Yeshiva in Israel and then made my way back to Yeshiva University, um, where you you realize who he is and, and how important and, and tremendous and extraordinary he is, and I said this to a, to a friend the other day. It's sort of like when Mary Jane realizes that Peter Parker is Spider-Man and you sort of go back <laughs> over every single interaction you ever had with him. You're like, oh, my God, that entire time he was a superhero. And, you know, you start to reexamine every interaction you've ever had. And you, you almost have to relearn the history of your entire life over again, filling in 
uh, all of your experiences with the knowledge that you now have of who this person is. And so, you know, uh, at that point in my spiritual development and intellectual development, it was just a mad dash to read uh, as many of his books and writings as I could get my hands on. And uh, eventually when his sermons were digitized, you know, in the beginning, my, my uncle or my Mark Dratch of the RCA had them all to himself, as he likes to say. Um, <laughs> but uh, but eventually they when they became available, you know, just devouring those which were his true art and his true love was, you know, of, of top priority to me. And I began to learn with him very closely and, and study with him a great deal on a regular basis. And I finally uh you know, asked him to grant me rabbinical ordination, and and he did, and that was perhaps the most special moment of my life. And um, you know, I, I I suppose I'd say my my only regret is that by the time I had plenty of time with him while he was still in his prime, uh, but by the time I realized really who he was, and I guess this is true of all grandchildren, by the time you really realize who your grandparents are, it's later than you wish it would have been. That's right. That's, that's, that's definitely true. A very poignant, a poignant observation. Uh, I want to say, just turn back to his dress show. I'm thinking about like, you know, different um, rabbinic figures who excel in different genres of, you know, there's some, you know, like Rashi, you know, the master of the short pithy, you know, comment, right. You know, right. just the right number of words, no more, no less. Right. And you have, uh, you know, others who, uh, you know, excel at great true votes. Okay. And others who write, you know, can, organize ideas into codes, right? Like the Rambam, right? He's an excellent organizer and conceptualizer of vast amounts of information. And uh, the drusha, the sermon as a, as a distinct genre, as a particular um, like mode of rabbinic creativity is something that, and it's interesting just to, to think about it. I, it. Certainly your grandfather was known for that. I think actually, I think the Jewish center as, as a congregation was known for, is still known actually as, as a congregation where, they care a great deal about, about the sermon as a form of scholarship, as a form, as an art form almost, that, that mixture of art and scholarship. And I think your grandfather is very much exemplary in that. And it's, uh, it's great that we have uh, not just the, you know, like the published editions, we can actually go back and see uh, on that digitized archive his handwritten emendations and corrections to the original typed uh, sermons. That's such a wonderful, wonderful resource. Oh, I mean, it, it's, it's the most magnificent source of contemporary Judaic thought that exists. And obviously I'm prejudiced, but you know, he was the, yeah, I mean th this, and I, I don't think I'm alone in, in this assessment. He was the greatest orator of, of the 20th century, uh, perhaps bar none, but certainly of the American Jewish scene uh, or of the Jewish scene globally. And he was not only um, a great orator and, you know, there are many great speakers, Although, as my as my grandfather used to say about uh, about a particular person whose speaking abilities he admired, uh, but whose content he was less than impressed by, he said he never has anything to say, but he says it beautifully. Um, <laughs> so, you know, my grandfather wasn't only a great speaker, and it wasn't just that his content was rich and magnificent, but that he really thought from an artisan's perspective almost about the craft of drush of homiletics, and I think perhaps his most indispensable piece of writing is an essay of his that he wrote called notes of an unrepentant darshan which you can get you know for you just type it into google you can get it for free online and that's where he reflects on the art and science of composing sermons 
And he has this wonderful line, which I'll never forget, where he says, and I think I'm getting the quote right. He says, if halacha is the science of Jewish religious life, then drush is its art and aesthetics needs no apology in its claim to a rightful place in the sanctuary of Torah. It's one of my favorite lines that he's ever written. And he essentially asked the question. He says that, that uh, you know, what would life be without poetry? Poetry is the medium that humans have always used to express the most ineffable truths. You can write in prose about mitosis and about the theory of relativity and about any number of, you know, about exogenous, you know, shocks to the economy. You can write in prose about any number of mechanical things, but love, loneliness, loss, death, hope, those are the things that you require poetry for. And Drush is the poetry of the Torah. It's really, uh, that's a beautiful uh, metaphor image and, and it uh, speaks to, um, yeah, something very true. I mean, I, I guess I, I give dress out <laughs> when we had a show that was open for big crowds, I used to give dress out uh, once <laughs> upon a time. And uh, it's definitely, uh, you know, in that capacity, you want to say something that's uh, interesting, that's compelling, that's important, but then you want to craft it in a way that works aesthetically. And uh, so that's, that's definitely its own art form. Absolutely. So I, I want to turn to some of his ideas that have gotten a lot of uh, coverage and, and have been spoken about in, in the past, really the week since uh, since his death, and uh, for good reason. He was really noted on a number of occasions, in, uh, and, and sadly, I, I, don't, I think this was not something that exemplified uh, the vast majority of his contemporaries for articulating a distinctly Jewish religious stance against against racism in the American context. And of a series of dress shows that he gave, this is a theme that that he returned to. And uh, so so obviously that's that's something that we're all thinking about right now is uh, yet again our country is grappling with its original sin and its you know ongoing perhaps greatest challenge. And uh, somehow something very evocative that on the week of Rabbi Lamb's passing, uh, his writings are you know, so, so germane and so, so compelling and relevant to, to what we're all thinking about. Yes. He felt very strongly, um, as a prelude to, to the question of civil rights and my grandfather's thought, he felt deeply passionately about the importance of Torah thinkers and leaders, um, addressing questions of, contemporary relevance and importance. And, you know, he has, again, and is, you know, Notes of an Unrepentant Darshan is an explicit methodological reflection. But as far as I know, he only has one sermon of his. Uh, it's from 1970. Uh, and it's called Confessions of a Confused Rabbi, in which he he actually doesn't even talk about anything in particular. It's purely a methodological reflection. And it's a response mm -hmm to a, a question that he had gotten after a sermon he had given two weeks before. Um, and in it, uh, he says, you know, two weeks, he, he reveals, and I wouldn't have known this without having read the sermon. Uh, he, ref, he, ref, he refers to a sermon he gave two weeks before, which is a, one of a sermon of his that I love about ecology. And I actually didn't know that the week that he gave that sermon, which I happened to adore, uh, that was the week of the Kent State shootings, and he did not address the Kent State shootings. Or the and it was also the same. It was shortly after the Cambodian campaign began. He didn't address that either, and he begins his sermon um, for Parshas Bahar in 1970 by saying, two weeks ago I spoke about ecology, and it was the Shabbos after the Cambodian campaign and the Kent shootings, 
and uh, young people from the congregation met with me and asked me, how come I did not? And they criticized me. He says, you know, how come I did not address uh, those issues? And he gives an entire sermon in which he lays out his thoughts about how, when, in what manner, and in what fashion rabbis should address contemporary politics and issues. And it is an absolute masterpiece. It's one of my favorite sermons, maybe my favorite sermon that he ever gave. And uh, in it, he sort of begins at the very, very top by, you know, laying out two uh, extremes that he that he disagrees with. One is the the question of politicization, you know, politicization of the pulpit. And, you know, he felt strongly that the Torah is much broader than politics. And so he has some sort of line, which I'm, I'm trying to remember verbatim, where he has some sort of line where he says a drusha can't sound like the editorial page of the New York Times with a couple of verses from the Torah tacked on. Um, and he but he says at the same time, it's equally inconceivable to him that rabbis should sort of you know, keep politics out of the pulpit because he says, if you're, that's just a concession that the Torah is entirely irrelevant to, to the world. And to him, that was even more offensive than the idea that the pulpit might be politicized. And so, you know, he then says, okay, there's obviously a massive gray area in between, but he, he, he was ferociously insistent that the Torah needed to be able to speak to contemporary issues. And he felt this from a very early age. I remember a sermon of his actually from 1952. It was, it was just, you remember reading a sermon of his from 1952. Yeah. This uh, this wasn't a, uh, this wasn't a back to the future scenario. My DeLorean is safely parked in my garage. Um, But uh, yeah, I remember reading a sermon of his 1952. I think it's either, either Vayetze or Vayishlach or Vayigash. It's one of those parashios, but it's basically right after the Korean War peace talks began. And he has this wonderful turn of phrase at the very opening of the Drusha where he says, and again, I'm trying to remember the exact line, but it's something like when the propaganda machines have ceased clattering and the partisan shouting has died down, that's when the Kol de Mamadaka, the, sm- the still small voice of religion, has to make its moral judgments and spiritual uh, judgments known. And so he has this, uh, he, he felt very strongly. The whole point of the Torah is that we believe as a matter of, as a cardinal matter of faith, that the Torah is the greatest tradition of wisdom in the entirety of human civilization. And if you believe that, then it stands to reason by necessity that the world needs to hear from teachers of Torah. Uh, the more serious the teachers, the better. And if you believe that the Torah, you know, that the, the Torah doesn't have anything to say about the great issues of the day, it's quite nearly heretical. And, you know, it doesn't mean, therefore, that uh, a Baal Torah or, or a, rather a Ben Torah or a Bas Torah needs to comment on every single thing that comes across his or her Twitter feed. That's certainly true. Um, and it doesn't mean that the Torah, you know, there's sort of like a one to one correspondence between Torah positions and political issues. But the idea that we should be. That, that not only we should be engaged with the world, but we have a, a moral responsibility even when it makes us uncomfortable and even if we'd rather not to actually bring the traditions of which we are stewards out to the world because the world needs us and we're civilization's best hope um, as a people and as a tradition. I mean, that was a cardinal issue for my grandfather. So in the question of, of racism and civil rights, that was exceedingly important to him. And his particular take on it was, I think, fascinating. He particularly associated racism and very few other things, by the way, if, if anything, I'd have to look through the drushes again, but 
my grandfather very explicitly associated racism specifically with the sin of idolatry. Um, wow. He thought that he thought that racism was a form of idolatry. He compared it several times to different elements of idolatry. So he has one sermon from, I want to say, uh, 1964, where he compares the uh, racism to the or sort of the the process of of how racism worms its way into the human psyche to the process by which the Jewish people made their peace with the Egel Hazav, um, with oh. the gold with the golden calf. In 1963, just after, I believe, the uh, March on Washington with, with Martin Luther King, uh, he gave a sermon where he compared racism to the sin of false weights and measures, which, uh, which is tied by, by Chazal, by the rabbis, and by the Torah itself, by juxtaposition to idolatry. Uh, and the reason he felt that racism was, uh, was tantamount to it was that uh you know he develops this idea that just like weights and measure using false weights and measures unlike adultery with which the torah juxtaposes that adultery is is a crime of passion right it's it's something that that happens in the moment and it's a matter of the heart uh but to use false weights and measures that requires premeditation and it's cold and it's calculating and that uh, is a systematic crime or, or, or a systemic crime, much like idolatry. Idolatry requires a system of beliefs, and it's not something that just happens in the moment. It's something that requires a society to, it, or that, that is baked into a society. And my grandfather felt that that was uh, precisely what uh, what racism was. And he his particular take on it was actually most targeted at not sort of uh, uh, the objects of racism, but rather the the white community in America. He felt very strongly, and this kind of goes to a larger dichotomy with which he was very taken. near first with several times in many other contexts in his sermons between rights and responsibilities. Right, so this is a it's not this is not his distinction, but the idea that the American system of democracy uh, can sometimes be caricatured as being premised on rights that we all have certain rights. Uh, and the Jewish tradition, and he felt that the American tradition r- rested on this as well in its in its purest form, also imposed responsibilities upon each of us to treat other people in a certain way. And so that had two implications for him. He said, first of all, you know, he felt that white Americans or, or non-black Americans had a responsibility to stamp out the racism in their own hearts and communities. Um, and he was ferocious about this. At the same time, um, because, again, he felt that stamping out racism was not a matter of one person's rights, but actually of our responsibilities, he also felt strongly that Jews had a responsibility to fight racism in the right way. And this is to go back to that sermon about the uh, confessions of a confused rabbi. One of the points that he makes is that he felt uncomfortable addressing the Kent State shooting. So he says, first of all, because he's... uh, he felt unsure about how, or and the Cambodian campaign as well, because even though he had he had loudly and in his sermons opposed the Vietnam War, he was also a staunch anti-communist, and he he also felt that communism was was a, a form of 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 atheism, and he uh, so you know he felt he felt that he wasn't he he wasn't sure that he knew enough or that he he had uh, thought things through enough in order to address those two things. And he gives a couple of other reasons why he didn't want to address them. But the third one is because he he questioned the priorities of many of the Jewish students 
um, who were involved in campus activism in the 60s. And my grandfather, I should say, I think perhaps his most heroic achievement as a rabbi, he stood up for civil rights and spoke out against apartheid and all these different, he spoke out against communism, all of these different things that he did. I think the most heroic thing that he did was that he was a rabbi in a Yekisha congregation and he gave at least three sermons of which I'm aware defending hippies. Um, <laughs> so, yes, so yeah. So I think, you know, my grandfather actually had a lot of sympathy for the hippies and he felt that they certainly were the sort of the campus radicals of the 60s he felt were were far more righteous than their parents, sort of the establishment squares for whom he had nothing but moral uh, contempt. Uh, but he did think that the campus radicals had gone so far and, and it was precisely because they didn't have the restraining force of religion in their lives that they had gone the way that they went. So he really, you know, he, he empathized with them, but he thought that they went not just too far. He thought that they actually did things that were terrible. And so he, he says, you know, one of the, one of the things that makes him uncomfortable in supporting the campus radicals and their causes was that he was very bothered by the fact that Jewish students on the campuses who were involved in anti-racist causes, which he supported, I mean, vociferously. And again, you know, compared racism to idolatry and spoke out against it many times. I mean, and, and you know, it wasn't like these sermons made him very popular, uh, but he, he felt very strongly about this. But he also felt that groups like the Black Panthers, whom he named specifically in several sermons, were evil. Um, and on, on the one hand, he thought, he, he thought that the police treated them terribly and he supported protesting against police brutality, but he, he was horrified by students who made a cause celeb out of the Black Panthers because he said they're, you know, they're not our friends, they're anti-Semites and they're anti-Israel. And he felt that on the one hand, um, you know, if I'm only for myself, then what am I? We have to be for others and we have to stand against injustice when we find it. But it may not nearly mealy and Jews, if Jews aren't going to stand up for Israel and for the interests of Jewish people, nobody else is going to do it. And so he was very perturbed by the fact that Jewish students made allies out of people who, uh, although righteous in their, in many of their aims, were also uh, terrible people in many respects. And so I think the the fact that my grandfather associated uh, racism with idolatry allowed him to do two things that I think were were unique in the rabbinic approach to racism at the time. I suppose three things. The first was that it allowed him to condemn racists as as the highest level sinners that are possible in Judaism. It also allowed him to speak about the ways in which racism is systemic, not just a personal crime. It's something that requires and even takes advantage and thrives on a on a an underlying culture that makes it possible. Um, but three, it also allowed him to make human agents out of the people who fight racism and the people who fight racism have a responsibility both to fight it, but also to, uh, to fight against other injustices. And those injustices could be perpetrated by some of the fellow fighters against racism. And I, I think that's what made his, his thought about this uh, unique. That, that's a, that, that, thank you for that, for that, um, summary that that's a, that's a, a voice that I think, um, would be very valuable uh, even now, especially now. Uh, I, I heard a story of a rabbi who was once told, Rabbi, I appreciated your servant so much. It, it really inspired me. And the rabbi responded, oh, it inspired you to do what? Okay, um, <laughs> <and> <laughs> right? To do something. I think it was Rav Steinsatz, I think, was told this. Oh, I, I, what you just said really inspired me. And he said, inspired me to what? So um, 
Can you share a little bit about what, what was the, because um, it seems like he was in a hard position if his congregants were sometimes alienated by his um, very bold, uh, forthright positions. And, you know, the, the campus uh, activists in some senses were not uh, natural allies of, of his for the reasons you, you mentioned. Uh, was he able to, to, to take those ideas and did they have leverage in the world? Did they have impact uh, in a way that, that you can discern? Uh, yes. So he, it's funny, actually in that very same sermon, which again, it's one of my favorites, Confessions of Confused Rabbi, he actually speaks directly to the students who asked him to speak about the Kent State shootings. And he said, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure that I agree with you. Uh, and he said, now, nevertheless, you may say, well, even if I don't agree with you, I have a responsibility to speak, uh, perhaps not truthfully, but because if I don't speak about these things, uh, I may lose young people from the synagogue. So he says... Quite uh, forthrightly, if I do discuss these issues and I don't agree with you, should I speak the truth and alienate such people, or should I uh, should I lie and make a you know and, and and make a liar out of myself? Or and this gets to your question, he says, you know, what about alienating the other people in my congregation? He says, you know, the uh, establishment adults in my community won't like it if I speak the truth either, uh, or rather, what won't like it if I coddle you. And they certainly will like it if I coddle them. And he says, who's and he's, he explicitly says this in the sermon. He says, who's more important? He says, uh, or, um, who's more influential? Who's more expendable? Should I consider and should I take this into account at all when I when I speak about this? And do you think that me explicitly taking into account who I who I, I need more, the young people or the adults? Do you think those kinds of considerations are more likely to make my sermon stronger or weaker? You think that's going to make them more attractive or more repulsive? And. Mm-hmm. So he says, the best thing I can do then is to speak the truth as I see it. And I think one of the wonderful things about the Jewish center is that as much as he had a congregation that certainly was full of very bright and accomplished people who had very strong opinions, there is a real uh, culture of Kvodarav in that synagogue to this day that I think um, positions the or, or encourages the Rav of the congregation to... Uh, speak his mind in uplifting and inspiring ways, because I think there's an implicit trust that the rabbi has the congregation in, in, in good hands and cares about their souls and their spirits and, and is, is a sort of a balanced person speaking from the perspective of the Torah. So I think that's, uh, that's, it's, it's one of the unique things about the Jewish center culture. I suppose. You had a position there at one point. Is that, I did. I was the I was the originally the rabbinic intern, then the resident scholar. And while while my grandfather was in the pews, it was a real incredible uh, incredible opportunity for me. It was amazing. Really nice. I, I, I had the experience of also once or twice uh, speaking in his presence when I was a summer rabbi at Lincoln Square Synagogue. Wow. Which I guess, uh, if the Jewish Center is the jewel in the crown of West Side Shuls, then the Lincoln Square Synagogue is the flagship of modern Orthodoxy. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right, they they might take offense though. I described the Jewish center. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I was uh, in a couple of uh, years when I was working on campus. Um, I was covering for Rabbi Robinson when he went away on summer vacation. So I gave a few dress outs, and your grandfather was uh, at that point, you know, was you know, you know, shifting around from the shuls on the west side. And so I think he heard me speak on one or two occasions, and that was uh, intimidating, but but really a, a, an experience that I that I treasure because because he said something very kind to me afterwards. So, but you know, so that really, uh, 
meant a lot to me that he appreciated what I had said. So. so I'll tell you the first time that I spoke from the pulpit in the main sanctuary in the Jewish center, you know, I was, I was given the privilege by Rabbi Yossi Levine, who's the senior rabbi of the Jewish center to give the, the drusha in the main sanctuary. And that morning I was walking to shul with my grandfather and, you know, he was, he had slowed down physically by that time. So, you know, we had to walk three blocks, but it was a nice long walk. So we had plenty of time to schmooze. And as we were walking, you know, he knew I was speaking from the, the main sanctuary that morning. And so he said, you know, what are you going to talk about? So I told him what I was going to say. And I, I gave him the whole thing from Aleph to uh, Tuff. And I was expecting a nice pat on the back and a, and some grandfatherly pride. And then I was going to march in there and blow the roof off the place. I'll never forget we're on Columbus Avenue. I, I finished telling him what I'm going to say. And he stops dead in his tracks. And he looks at me and he says, that's terrible. Oh, no. <laughs> and I, I had a panic attack. But he was never a critic for the sake of being a critic. He was always a, a constructive presence. And I'll never forget the rest of the walk. He, he asked me, what's, you know, what's your main idea? I told him the main idea. He said, okay, that's good. That's good. That's good. What are some of the nice turns of phrase you want? He's like, I gave him this and he suggested some other things and put this here and put that there and then, you know, fix this wow. thing. And then you need to add something there. And put he, in the span of a minute, you know, he or, or however long, you know, the, however many minutes remain to us as we walked to the Jewish center, he had taken the entire thing apart, put it back together. And then he said to me, okay, so now all you have to do is figure out a little bit of this and that, and then remember this. and he said, it'll be fine. And I do not remember, <laughs> I don't remember having said a single word of davening that day. I was so terribly nervous. And I, I have no memory of giving that drasha at all because uh, I was so uh, terrified. But I think it went well because they asked me to do it uh, again uh, many times. And, uh, and I do remember after delivering it, he was so proud and complimentary and it was an incredible thing and i know many people who have spoken in front of him especially people uh, closer in age to myself but even old hats uh, and and experienced professionals like uh, rev jj Schachter or, or people like that you know or, or uh, rabbi levine himself rabbi berman ari berman have have all described the experience of speaking in front of him and as one have characterized the joy that he took in listening to students of his and students' students uh, try their hand at the craft of drush of homiletics, to him it was uh, it was such a pleasure and it gave him so much pride. That's it's really great. I I, I um, my editor for Drushot is is my wife and uh, likewise I, I've learned, <laughs> learned to, you know to to you know, sometimes I, if I get the feedback without enough time to make the corrections that's like. You know, that, that, that's on me. So I try to give her a draft early enough so that if she says this is terrible, uh, I have time to, to make corrections. So um, <laughs> editing is really key in many, right. many fields. It's a lovely story. Uh, it's a really lovely story. Um, so thank you so much for, for uh, coming on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. And, and I um, just hope you have you know, so your, your warm, inspiring memories of your grandfather continue to nourish you and your family uh, for many, many years to come and that you continue like your good work of, of sharing his Torah and his vision for what modern orthodoxy should represent in the world, what the Torah should represent in the world and how uh, the Torah's message should be made relevant to all of us in the world today. So so thank you for that good work and, and uh, with the foundation as well and for sharing just some of your time with us, uh, uh, with our listeners. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, my, my absolute pleasure. This was a total blast and uh, looking forward to speaking to you soon. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Straw Hats. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Let us know what you think. Please subscribe, rate us, share the podcast with your friends and family. We hope that you are all continuing to stay healthy and safe, and we hope you'll join us again in two weeks for our next episode. 